Welcome to History Wise, a podcast that uses lessons from the past to better understand our lives today, and perhaps tomorrow. I'm Matt McCarter. Over the last few weeks, we've all had our lives disrupted by the outbreaks of coronavirus occurring around our communities and all over the world. In one way or another, we're all making adjustments, and it's certain that this crisis and how societies respond to it will be studied for years to come, both in their successes and their failures. While each nation develops a course of action of how to deal with this virus, we need to do everything we can to arm ourselves with the tools available to assist us in overcoming these problems. Let's lean on new ideas and explore new technologies to help us succeed in this. But let's also look back at history for some answers. And while we're there, let's recognize mistakes our ancestors made and try our best not to make them ourselves. This coronavirus has found a way to get a grip on almost all aspects of our society. And although this time of uncertainty is uncomfortable and frightening, this isn't the first time, nor will it be the last time, that our societies will have to persevere through plague and disease. Now, that is in no way meant to limit the severity of this current pandemic. This is an enormous event that will have massive ramifications that will ripple all around the world for years to come. But once again, this isn't mankind's first rodeo. There are illnesses in our past that could potentially open up windows to what the future may hold for us. Each of these outbreaks in history has something to offer. We could analyze the Black Plague or Bubonic Plague in the Middle Ages, and although there are some similarities to today's situations, Its lack of sources and its chronological distance from us in history doesn't make it our prime case study. We could also break down the recent outbreaks of H1N1 in 2009, which could certainly help us understand how to contain one of these potential global threats, but it does little to provide insight to our current situation and what's potentially to come. And as this situation becomes rapidly more threatening to the foundations of our society, Many are asking themselves, how long is this going to last? And when will life go back to normal? And no one knows for certain what will come next. But to best answer these questions, we have to explore the last sickness that spread in this fashion and caused as much destruction and disruption. And that is the Spanish flu of 1918. Part 1 the Spanish flu, 1918. The world of 1918 is a complex one. It's a time of booming businesses, patriotism, nationalism, scientific discovery, and governments racing to build modern armies. It is the beginning of the end of the bloodiest conflict that the world had ever seen, World War I. The start of the 20th century included world powers spending outrageous fortunes, building and developing these armies by maximizing their destructive ability. And this created a close-quartered horror scene of human brutality that would leave its mark on the world in countless ways. The war would bring over 30 different countries' men to European battlefields, 
Men from small villages near the French Alps were crossing paths with farm boys from the southern United States in some of the most wretched conditions, leaving many of these soldiers in close quarters and also extremely malnourished. The war would come to an end by the fall of 1918, and millions of soldiers would lose their lives in the violent conflict. Yet a deadlier process that crept along military transport lines and into these soldiers' hometowns had already started to unfold. The first cases of the Spanish flu were likely prior to the year 1918, but the major impacts of the sickness will occur in 1918 and 1919. And there are many theories about where this flu originated, and all of them are contested. Some theories suggest it originated in French military hospitals due to their proximity to pig and poultry operations. Other theories imply that it potentially started in China due to their low numbers of fatalities compared to the rest of the world. Although we will likely never know the true origin of the Spanish flu, many experts agree that it likely started in America. The first known case was reported in Kansas in early March 1918. The theory goes that this strain of flu originated in the United States. It spread amongst our military bases, which then sent soldiers to Europe to fight in World War I, where the disease spread among soldiers, mutated into a much deadlier strain, and spread around the world from the European battlefields, including back to American shores. Oddly enough, the Spanish flu, the name Spanish flu, just isn't very fitting. The illness didn't start there, and Spain really had nothing to do with it besides being a country that experienced its wrath. The reason the illness is called the Spanish flu is because the Spanish papers actually reported on the pandemic, while other papers from other countries did not. More on that later. There are several major factors that fueled this illness and caused it to spread, and most of them are somehow connected to World War I. Soldiers from all around the world were in extremely close contact with one another. The conditions of World War I in the trenches were appalling. It doesn't take much of an imagination to picture how a disease could run rampant in the trenches, and they did. You know, you have no running water, no bathing, no changing of clothes, you're sharing meals, you're sleeping quarters. I mean, you get the picture. The movement of troops along the front lines and between these military bases fanned the flames of this infection. In early 1918, the flu was in American military bases, starting with a cook at a Kansas base. And within just a few days at that base, 522 men were ill. Within a week, cases were reported in New York City. 1,500 miles away, and plenty in between. The unusual migratory conditions of 1918 aided this spread. Soldiers going to and returning from a centralized area were transferred to military bases and eventually to their far parts of the world. But before reaching their homelands, they were packed into, once again, extremely close quarters on these ships many of them already carrying the illness. These types of conditions allowed one or two cases to quickly turn into 10,000 cases. Also, I mean, we realize that many of these military bases are located near or around large cities, and they have a civilian population working on the base. 
This created an easy channel for cross-contamination between civilian and military populations. Most governments realized there was a problem by late spring 1918, and all governments realized by the fall of 1918. But very few of these governments acknowledged the problem when they really could have had an impact in those early months. And instead, they either denied the problem or delayed their response for a multitude of reasons. You see, governments wanted their people to focus on the war effort and remain positive. They wanted to keep morale high. Pandemic, as we can all relate, it's just not good for morale. In fact, the only reason why the Spanish papers were running the news about the pandemic was because they were neutral. They weren't involved in the war, and they didn't have these same concerns of sustaining a false sense of security and positivity as these other nations did. As the fall of 1918 came around, American citizens were confused by this term Spanish flu. Was this something that only occurred in Europe? And the flu was known at that time. It wasn't anything new. Now, it wasn't something that you wanted, but it also wasn't so deadly. So what's the big deal? And everyday Americans weren't the only ones confused. Doctors were puzzled. This strain of flu couldn't be the same one from the spring. And it was tearing through communities, killing at a much higher percentage than it was just months ago. Its victims suffered a gruesome death that eventually left the bodies bloody and black and blue, drawing some comparisons to the Black Death of the Middle Ages. Another puzzling aspect. The patients succumbing to the flu were in the prime of their lives. Those in their 20s and 30s were the most affected, and affected quickly. Some patients would come into hospitals complaining of mild symptoms in the morning, and by nightfall, they had passed on. Others never made it to the hospital. These alarming new findings and the overall confusion around the nation was starting to expose huge problems. The flu moved all along the eastern seaboard. Boston, New York, Philadelphia, and Washington, D.C., starting in major cities, usually near a military base or a shipping port, but eventually reaching even the smallest towns. And although the spread had begun, society was slow to shut down, and life went on as normal. For example, on September 11th, 1918, Babe Ruth helped the Boston Red Sox beat the Chicago Cubs and win the World Series to a sold-out crowd. But on that same day, three people died of the Spanish flu just outside of Boston. Government officials failed to recognize the severity of this issue, and many denied that the disease would or should have an impact on everyday life. Royal Copeland, the health commissioner of New York City at the time, infamously stated, the city is in no danger of an epidemic, no need for our people to worry. This is just an ordinary flu by a different name. Similar sentiments as these were echoed by many government officials around the country even though most of them had already seen bodies of those who had perished from this illness, and they knew that it wasn't an ordinary flu. There were some cries from public officials to shut everything down and suppress the illness. But again, the war effort demanded that the economy continue to function, soldiers continue to prepare for war, and that daily life go on as usual. The war was the main focus, 
and societies around the U.S. refused to put any event that would benefit the war on hold. The newspapers, pressured by city officials to try and calm the masses and refrain from any panicking of citizens, ran articles that ignored concerns from health officials and praised city officials for their responses. Some cities, even with the information of a potential outbreak, held parades to raise money for the war. Philadelphia held a massive parade of over 200,000 people, and in the days that followed, the flu ripped through their community in shocking numbers. Within 72 hours, all city hospitals were at capacity and reporting growing numbers of patients with flu-like symptoms. The numbers of the dead and dying skyrocketed, nearing close to 1,000 a day in Philadelphia alone. Essential parts of this famous American city were starting to break down. Even the most prepared hospitals of the time were quickly overwhelmed. And the overwhelming of a hospital network can manifest itself in many different ways, and none of them are pretty. In 1918, they ran out of beds, clean sheets, gowns, and other essential medical equipment due to the hemorrhaging that accompanied the Spanish flu. Patients suffocating from pneumonia also lost blood from their mouths, nose, eyes, ears. It's bad stuff. And when they did this, they infected all sorts of equipment and vital equipment that the medical staff needed. Nurses, doctors, and staff, they were exposed to this illness, leading to an already short supply of medical professionals. You see, just as the war had harnessed the power of America's young men as soldiers, it had also consumed a massive portion of the medical community, who now found themselves a world away from their country in need. We have to remember, too, that the hospitals are already dealing with their current load of patients. Just because there is a pandemic doesn't mean that cancer, labor and delivery, and heart attacks aren't occurring. These scenarios create difficult choices for doctors regarding who gets the priority of treatment. The flu moved swiftly, rippling through communities around the nation, spreading waves of infection. States requested assistance from one another and the federal government when the illness had peaked or perhaps returned to their states. Some large cities experienced several waves of the Spanish flu, adding anxiety surrounding how society should recover from the initial shock. For example, the second wave of the flu that returned to San Francisco in 1918, after the call was made by government officials that the city was safe from the disaster, was the most deadly, infecting more than 5,000 people in a single month. The potential for a city to go through this devastation multiple times weighed heavy on the thoughts of their people. To try and help the situation that was occurring around the country, the federal government quickly approved a million-dollar fund to try and combat the disease. Now, that's a little less than $20 million in today's currency, which clearly isn't enough to combat a pandemic. And although their funding was inadequate, they did develop effective plans to try and concentrate resources to affected cities around the nation, then direct these resources, both their personnel and materials, to the next city once it experienced the Spanish flu peak. To take on this daunting challenge, the federal government partnered with private industries, which did see some successes in larger cities. The government also offered military men and military supplies to assist with the surges in flu cases that were occurring. Communities did their best to try and combat the spread of the flu through closure or things like what we're now calling social distancing. This practice was widely used during the time of the Spanish flu, 
often too late to stop the numbers of infected from rising, but there are many cities that made these tough choices to close schools, churches, and non-essential businesses to try and isolate their populations. Some small towns even went as far as to block roads in and out of the cities, only to eventually experience the infection, sometimes brought in by the mail carriers. Regardless of how it got in, societies around the nation were starting to grind to a halt. These times of quarantine range from community to community, but lasted two to six weeks on average, with the longest that I could find around 15 weeks. Something interesting here too, the people in 1918 were not new to quarantine. Just two years prior, many cities around the country had implemented strict quarantines during a polio outbreak that saw some relative success in managing the outbreak of the disease. Historians use this difference in response between the quick action to contain polio and the delay in the Spanish flu to account for the government's focus on morale during World War I. In 1918, most of the quarantine started out as guidelines for the community. But when hospitals were seeing increased cases and the public wasn't following the guidelines, these guidelines turned into law, like the anti-spitting laws in Philadelphia that ticketed up to 60 people a day. Now, even though society was starting to take steps to reel in the flu, the spread and the numbers continued to grow. And just like that, just when the nation felt like it was going to break under the pressures of this pandemic, it was gone. The last weekend of October in 1918, Philadelphia saw 4,795 deaths. Yet 10 days later, the hospitals had open beds. Deaths had dropped by 90%, and the city was starting to reopen. Now, this quick decline can be attributed to two factors. One, the overwhelming majority of people who got the disease survived and developed immunity. And as cities experienced the next wave of the sickness, they had already built up their individual immunity, and the sickness didn't have as many hosts as it had before. And this slowly killed its spread. Secondly, the virus, which had mutated between the spring and fall of 1918, which caused this huge spike in cases and deaths, would once again naturally mutate. And luckily this time, it mutated into a less deadly strain. And it was over. It was gone. flu had run its course quickly and furiously. The destruction the disease had created gaps in American society. There was economic damage from closing businesses and sick workers, especially since the illness was lethal to prime working-age people it left holes in communities. The speed of which the disease progressed led to shorter shutdowns of society, which led to quick responses, economic responses as well, and their recovery. In fact, several studies have shown that the economic impacts were slight during and after the illness in 1918. Those who had perished, though, left these gaps in society, and women would step up in large numbers. Now, this illness didn't only target the young, but also men specifically. One, because men were the soldiers who were in those close quarters and traveling all over the world. They were just more likely to be exposed. Secondly, the war had left many of these soldiers that had survived malnourished, and they had depleted immune systems that couldn't battle the sickness. Between the casualties of the war and the illness, women took a lead on response and recovery efforts, as well as filling some government positions. 
During the arbitrations of 1918, most of President Wilson's cabinet got sick, including his wife and his personal doctor. One of his aides is said to have gotten the illness three separate times, killing him on the last bout. President Wilson himself admitted that getting the illness and having these awful symptoms called it one of the worst nights of his life. The impacts of the illness of the government would lead to lasting change. Some historians claim that the impacts of the flu in 1918 created a political setting that provided steam to the 1919 women's suffrage movement. Both the government and society were quick to forget the Spanish flu. There were few fundamental changes on the national level that needed to occur to stop this from happening again. There were no wide-ranging government studies that occurred to get accurate numbers of the dead and reflect on the response effort. The first real study analyzing the national numbers of the pandemic didn't occur until 1927, almost 10 years after the first cases. And even this study was pretty half-assed, for lack of a better word. Once again, though, we have to consider the context here. The sickness was secondary in the minds of the government and many Americans. The world was just ending this awfully violent conflict that claimed the lives of over 115,000 American soldiers. Their cities had experienced fear and isolation, along with the loss of many loved ones. It's understandable why American society just wanted to move on and look forward to better times. But even so, there were issues that remained. And even though these issues wouldn't have the symptoms of the flu that were as ugly and as brutal, they were still there, but just beneath the surface. Society was struggling with mental health following the surges in cases, and rightly so. Consider the isolation people felt in this quarantine at this time, while knowing or even seeing loved ones in the prime of their life die of this awful illness, sometimes in a matter of hours, and then having no way to grieve due to funerals being banned, it's not hard to imagine a society that was left with delirium, as it was called, or depression or fatigue in the UK, or even mental instability in France. Society was struggling with what we would now call post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. And regardless of this ever-changing name, some who made it through the illness were still feeling its impacts. Overall, nothing realistically could have stopped the flu from spreading all over the world in 1918. It was the perfect, or more imperfect time, for something like that to occur. Some societies were able to slow the spread or delay the spread through some of the measures that we discussed earlier and that many of us are taking today. With its quick rise and fall, the flu was able to grip communities and it infected our nation as a whole. And once it passed, the American people were left to pick up the pieces and move on. We are in the thick of it now with this coronavirus, but we're in a special place where we can empathize with those feelings from 1918. We can understand some of the basis of the decisions that are being made day to day on a local to a national level. So let's compare the time of the Spanish flu to our current situation in 2020 in terms of how the illness spread, how societies reacted, and what types of impacts it could have on our future. Coming up next on History Wise. Part 2, COVID-19, 2020. Now, between these two pandemics, there are significant similarities that have plenty to offer for analysis. 
but also understand that these two situations have vast differences. Some of the more obvious differences to start. Today we have a much stronger medical knowledge and also more sound medical practice. For example, we were able to decode the genetic structure of this coronavirus in a matter of days, a process that took AIDS researchers years to complete. And this increased medical understanding paired with our modern society's ability to communicate create huge gaps in the two scenarios of 1918 and today. Today we see more outlets for communication between the public on a more rapid basis than compared to 1918. This quick and essential communication helps implement important decisions by governments and provide the best information for people who are already sick or looking to avoid getting sick. Let's take yesterday for example. Although I did my best to try and take a break from the news, there were press briefings from the president, the governor of Colorado, and the mayor of Denver. There was the local news at 7, 12, 4, and 10 p.m., and the national news at 5.30. And that's not even going down the rabbit holes of 24-hour news coverage, our ability to check social media or informative websites at our fingertips. Now, whether or not people follow those instructions is a different issue. Let's contrast these expansive communication systems to the communication systems in 1918. At this time, the main way the public is getting updates about what's going on is mostly through the morning newspaper, and that's for those who could read. TV wasn't even a thought, and radio was still a decade away from its golden age. It's difficult even to wrap our heads around what that would have been like, but there is one anecdote that exemplifies this difference. During the most deadly outbreak in Philadelphia, considered one of the world's advanced cities of the time, they had priests ride on horseback up and down these empty streets of Philly, calling for those with dead relatives inside their homes to place the bodies outside of their residence so that the city could figure out how these bodies should be disposed of. Clearly, our communication and our medical understanding give us a distinct advantage compared to the world of 1918. Another key difference to recognize, there isn't a massive international conflict that's occurring right now, or at least a conflict that would be comparable to World War I. As mentioned earlier, World War I was a significant cornerstone of the Spanish flu's spread, but also somewhat of an attention stealer from the ongoing flu pandemic in 1918. In our current age, many governments are receiving criticism for dragging their feet with the coronavirus. But one could only imagine if there were a large-scale war right now, involving millions of soldiers from dozens of different countries, what kinds of impacts that might have. An event comparable to World War I would delay further actions and any concentration of resources. But before we put this in the advantage category, another big difference to recognize is that our global society is vastly more connected internationally than was in 1918. Most modern countries have significant portions of their population traveling through either airlines or high-speed rail, both domestically and internationally, creating this daily constant flow of potentially infected humans traveling from shore to shore all across the globe. This is a double-edged sword. Our human connection to one another allows us to contribute to each other's societies, but it also opens the door for us to infect one another. In terms of economic damage, there is a huge difference. The coronavirus in our current economic climate is set to be much worse than 1918. 
the global economies of today are so interconnected and the virus has infected the entire planet. So all countries are going to share in this economic burden. But our industries today have their supply lines all around the world, which wasn't uncommon in 1918, but it was certainly much less common than it is today. The world will likely see peaks at least throughout the rest of this year, causing disruptions in planning, investing, reorganizing, and supplying. All vital components of a business. Also, this coronavirus doesn't seem to be mutating as rapidly as the flu did, meaning that the quarantine and social distancing may have to occur over a longer period than in 1918, which sustains these negative impacts on the economy. Coupled with this sustaining problem, the coronavirus has locked down many of our largest economies simultaneously, causing huge rises in unemployment, which in America, employment is the primary healthcare provider, and this opens up a whole nother bag of issues. Like I said before, the ripple effects of this pandemic will occur for years to come, and the economic damage that we see might be unparalleled. Now, hopefully, this most recent legislation at the federal level can help some of the symptoms of the economic slump that is destined to follow us. But it will have to be the first step in a series of stimulus, stimuli and economic protection packages that are likely to come. Last difference that I'm going to cover, and it's a huge one. The Spanish flu targeted and killed young and healthy men and women in the prime of their lives in an extremely short amount of time. Although there's only preliminary data about our current crisis, the higher fatalities seem to be occurring in the age brackets of 60s, 70s, and 80s. And there are deaths in the lower ages of COVID-19, and it is still dangerous for all populations. But one could only imagine if the percentages of the deaths were peaking in the 30s and the 20s, or our teenagers. How would that change our current reactions to the coronavirus? It is difficult to draw similarities between the past and today with such wildly different values, political climates, power dynamics, etc. But there are clear connections to the spread of COVID-19 and the Spanish flu. The first we will explore, the nonchalant attitude that prevailed in America during the initial weeks of the illness, especially amongst the government leaders, is eerily similar to what society saw in 1918. Regardless of the reasons for denial, whether it's to stop panic or save economic fallout or just to oppose their new reality, this was abundant in 1918 as well as early 2020. We have all heard contradictory statements from presidents, senators, governors, and others who hold office. In these two situations, we have seen the government downplay the coronavirus, ignore facts about the coronavirus, and even peddle misinformation about the virus. Originally, there were the constant comparisons to the coronavirus and the flu. Some stated that the symptoms were less severe than the flu. Others claimed that it was only impacting the elderly and your average person had nothing to worry about. Some of this was just the public finding out new information after studies came out. And some of it was our government not wanting to recognize its new and hopefully temporary reality. Now, to the politician's defense. These are not easy decisions that they're making. Suspending the economy and the fallout that comes with it 
will be a massive burden. And that's certainly what they were thinking about during those early weeks and months during the coronavirus. But the delay in response and the downplaying of the severity of the illness caused confusion, political divide, and has increased the rate of infection. It was definitely a mistake in 1918 to not take the Spanish flu seriously. And in the early days of this pandemic, we fell into the same trap. Fortunately, many of those who initially questioned the severity of our situation have come to understand the gravity of it. Although many scientists fear the damage is already done and we're in for a long year. The reactions of Americans 100 years ago has striking similarity to what we see today. Those of you listening to this are likely in a state or a city that has already come grinding to that halt. Just as in 1918, some of those halts came too late. Look at New York City, for example. Their society has been shut down for weeks now, but still the numbers will climb and likely will continue to climb in the weeks to come. Also, the evolution of these shelter-in-place rules also followed a similar trajectory today as they did in the early 20th century. The government starts by recommending what society should do to stop the spread. Then, as numbers at hospitals continue to rise, the government transitions to creating and applying the new laws to force some of our population who refuse to follow the rules. Along with these shutdowns, we've shared experiences of panic buying, depleted shelves, and rationing with the people of 1918. But Americans during that time were experiencing these things prior to the Spanish flu. The innovative German submarine warfare in 1918 caused vital supplies to end up at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, so strict government rationing orders on meats, wheats, fats, and sugars were already in place prior to the flu pandemic. In our current crisis, some countries have imposed huge monetary fines for those who left quarantine or even threatened to charge individuals with attempted murder or terrorism. China was purported to weld people into their own apartments to ensure that they followed their quarantine. Now, I don't ever see it coming to something like that in America, yet we will start to see societies fining people or uh, punishing people for not following the rules. And this is weird for Americans who love to tout their freedom. Our government has made choices to close schools, churches, non-essential businesses to stop the spread of infection, causing another wave of problems along with it. What type of businesses are essential? And who decides that? Sometimes these decisions are counterintuitive and even a little humorous. Well, as humorous as a pandemic gets, I guess. But for example, the recent shelter-in-place rules in Denver labeled liquor stores and marijuana dispensaries as non-essential during the planned three-week shutdown. And this was announced at 3 p.m., planning to start the following day. Well, this led to a rush on all open pot and booze shops and created long, congested lines of people trying to load up on their stash at home, preparing for the shelter-in-place orders. Luckily, Denver's responsive government undid the law just a few hours later to ease the congestion. But they also learned an essential government lesson. If you're going to force your population to stay at home, you better let them get stoned and drunk. Even with responsive governments in cities that hold pandemic procedures and they run drills preparing for them, 
they are reporting being underprepared. Whether it's gowns, masks, face shields, ventilators, hospital workers have sounded the alarm for shortages in their equipment. Similar problems occurred in 1918, some of them almost identical. In 1918, there was a shortage of face masks, and the government encouraged the public to make their own masks out of any material available. Although this sounds incredibly outdated to our medical understanding, just last week, the CDC, which wasn't around in 1918 and wouldn't be created until 1946, directed those in the medical community that are experiencing a shortage of masks to use bandanas or scarves as a form of protection, a practice that has little to no scientific evidence of actually working. There were other shortages in 1918, some that we haven't seen and hopefully won't. In 1918, these shortages included coffins and places to put dead bodies of the infected. Now, once again, we haven't really seen these issues in our current situation, but we're in the early stages of a pandemic timeline. And if our numbers continue the way that some people are suggesting, these are problems we need to figure out. In 1918, gravediggers, for fear of contracting the flu themselves, they refused to bury infected bodies. And this led to piles of infected corpses sitting out to rot. With our current epicenters happening in largely urban areas, I hope those that are dealing with this logistical nightmare are starting to consider where to put our mounting body count. Another element we are already seeing along with our 1918 brothers and sisters is a shortage of vital healthcare workers. Many hospitals, especially those in densely populated urban areas, are trying their best to staff their hospitals for the upcoming surge. This issue pairs with the problem and shortages of essential equipment. If our health professionals are unable to effectively protect themselves from the infection, we will face a far greater problem, and a similar problem to what they faced in 1918. And although, once again, we don't have this large-scale international war comparable to World War I, there is a shortage of medical professionals. There are many states working to prepare nurses and doctors for the possible surges in cases, and some of these states are competing against one another. But they're also working to figure it out. States are cutting laws that require extra testing for out-of-state medical professionals and urging those who recently retired to return to the field. Um, And this was a practice that was very similar to what communities used in 1918. There are also similarities in the military response. The Navy has sent hospital ships to major cities, medical army reserves have been activated, and the Army Corps of Engineers has been deployed to set up field hospitals. As this crisis continues to develop, Watch for the military to take on a larger role. Lastly, although it's hard to fathom now, eventually we'll be on the other side of this menace. And it will be interesting to see the mindset of Americans once the coronavirus has subsided. I am sure that some will use this as a way to create foundational change in America and point to the errors in our system. And others will just want to get back to normal, to the way life was. But just as in 1918, there will surely be some mental health problems that persist beyond the infections of COVID-19. Some will be grieving the loss of a loved one or loved ones and having to process those losses without funerals, without saying goodbye, without getting to be there with the loved one as they passed. And without that closure, that's going to need to be addressed. Others will have suffered from the simple isolation or the changes in their daily routines or maybe an inability to get stabilizing medication during these tough times. Regardless of the origin of the mental health issue, 
people all around the country will need help long after this last wave passes. And we need to be ready for that. Part three, final thoughts. Throughout 1918 and 1919, the Spanish flu spread around the world to dozens of countries, infecting more than 500 million people, around 30% of the world population at that time, and killing an estimated 50 million people. And these are likely lower range numbers. Every study that's been conducted since 1918 studying the Spanish flu pandemic has resulted in higher numbers of fatalities in those that were infected. The illness would last around two years, but the bulk of its killing in America lasted in a 24-week range. When we boil it down, there are a few lessons that we can learn from the Spanish flu. And these aren't groundbreaking by any means, and with the information surrounding the virus changing so rapidly, some of what I've said is sure to be outdated by the time it's published. But at minimum, these lessons provide us with some rationale for what's happening and why, and maybe it provides us with some precedent. So number one, we can expect a general confusion to continue in society while we learn more about the virus. Some of this confusion we already have answers for, concrete answers for, and it's more of a case of misinformation in the public. Other parts of this confusion comes from us not having the answers, answers that we might not have for a long time. Two, we are already seeing and will continue to see shortages of medical equipment and medical staff. Three, many people are going to die all around the world and likely unproportionately higher in more poorer countries. And our society and the rest of the world will have this mental anguish that will need to be sorted out after the fact. Four, and this one's more of a, an applicable, maybe logistical lesson to today from 1918. This idea of using a rotating system of nurses and doctors and medical materials, just like they did in 1918, to meet the needs of different regions that are experiencing a surge of the virus seems like a wise plan. Although, once again, this would be an incredible logistical challenge, and it would also take the dedication of many brave medical workers. But it could be our best bet to handling the peaks and the lulls of this virus. It's tricky to compare the numbers of these two pandemics due to estimations, lack of sources, projections, and simple unknowns. But let's try to compare the numbers. Over the course of three to four months, and at the time this was recorded, the coronavirus has been detected in over 140 countries and is approaching a million people infected with over 50,000 dead. If this pandemic were to continue unimpeded and happen on the same scale as the Spanish flu, worldwide, we are looking at over 2 billion people infected and hundreds of millions of dead. Those are scary numbers to consider, and I haven't seen projections in that ballpark taken seriously. But the key word in that last phrase was unimpeded. If we do nothing to try and stop it, this is going to get so much worse. I mean, it's already going to get much worse, but it's going to get worse. So if you're canceling plans and practicing social distancing, if you're helping neighbors meet their needs, 
If you're working to protect the most vulnerable in our population, or in any way helping our society retain its normalcy, you're part of the solution. And to those of you who are bagging groceries and stocking shelves, those who are working long shifts to keep our power systems and utilities running, those of you who've adapted your business to sew masks or print face shields or make hand sanitizer, and most of all, those of you in the medical field, on the front lines of this mess, taking care of those who are infected and suffering, you are all the heroes in this historic time. We all have someone in mind while we encounter this illness. It could be an ill grandparent, an immunocompromised child, or in my case, a very pregnant wife. We all have someone to protect. So let's do what we can when we can. Let's listen to the experts and stay calm, but also be vigilant about what's going on around you. We have a long year ahead of us, and an even harder next few months. But together, with the support of one another, we can overcome this illness and its impacts, just as they did in 1918. I'm Matt McCarter. Thanks for listening. Science. They explain it to me.